0: Hello. Good evening. I I was thinking earlier, I got a little worried because the subject of tonight's talk is generosity, dana, And there was a a talk about that this afternoon for those of you who are leaving. And I thought, oh, it's too much. But then I was reflecting on uh, one of my first long retreats in Burma with Sayadaw Upandita. And uh, he likes to be very thorough. <laughs> As Michelle and Rebecca, I think, well know, and uh, so he was, he was basically talking about battling the the defilements uh, for a period of quite a long time. And he would he would give a talk, and it was with translation, so it took a couple of hours. And uh, and I was a monk at the time, and so the monks sit up front, so there's no way you can. Sneak away, (laughs) and uh, and so he would give a talk, and then and he was giving talks six days a week. And then the next night he'd come in and say, "Yesterday I was talking about," and he would spend about three quarters of the time period recapitulating, (laughs) and then he would add a little bit, (laughs) and this went on for weeks, and. uh, It was, it was very useful, but um, anyway, you're getting off easy, (laughs) no matter what. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, um, hmm. I think the other night I mentioned this, but one of the sort of models or or ways that, that our path of practice is described is this is a threefold training of dana sila bhavana. I think I mentioned two of those. Dana sila bhavana is one way it's expressed, which is generosity, ethical conduct, and then bhavana is usually translated as um, mental development or culture, mental culture, and it refers to the meditation practices that we do, metta and vipassana. Uh, another model is uh, sila samadhi panya, which is the, uh, con- the, um, cultivation of ethical conduct again as a foundation samadhi concentration and then panya wisdom um, in the dana sila bhavana model these two dana and sila are really seen as as uh, the foundation upon which the the meditation practices are, are they rest on this and the buddha taught about generosity and ethical conduct before teaching any kind of meditation practice, uh, especially with lay people. So he placed a great emphasis on this. And sometimes we, when we hear about this, it seem, can seem like it's a very linear sort of thing. And we think, well, we, we get this foundation of our conduct. And maybe we reflect on generosity. And then we, we sort of set those aside. And then we're on to um, the real thing of the meditation practice. But there, as I mentioned also, I think the other night, there's these uh, really have a very circular relationship to each other and uh, it's really not a linear progression that they're constantly informing and transforming one another and supporting one another and as as our understanding deepens, then each of these come into play and are more and more, uh, become more subtle and refined. And this happens, I think, for the most part in a very organic and natural, spontaneous way. But it's also a place that, where we can really bring our attention and our mindfulness and, and the power of our intention, the power of intention in the mind and the heart, we can really bring it to bear in this, this uh, relationship of these um, different parts of the path. So we can look at the path, look at our practice in terms of cultivating that which is wholesome and useful. And conversely, in letting go of abandoning, relinquishing that which is unwholesome. So in other words, we are choosing that which leads to greater happiness and peace and freedom on the one hand and abandoning that which leads to more suffering and unhappiness on the other for ourselves and for others. And so we can see in this, how this circular reinforcing relationship arises naturally, because as we pay greater attention to how we live in the world, to our relationship with our life and with others, In terms of our conduct, then our, as we pay greater attention and and this becomes more refined, then we're able to make uh, more wise choices in how we live. Our wisdom grows. And as we make, as our choices become wiser, as our wisdom increases, then the way that we live in the world becomes more refined as a result of that. And so there's this beautiful cycle in which these qualities reinforce each other in a very beautiful way. There's a teacher in, also in, in Burma that I had the good fortune to meet on a couple of occasions. He's, he's a bit hard to find. He's not interested in becoming a celebrity and he doesn't teach in a meditation center or monastery. Um, His name is Sayada Ujotika. And this is a quote from him, from a book of his called Snow in the Summer. Freedom really means knowing what is useful, what is beneficial and worthwhile, knowing what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, and then choosing what is wholesome, good and right, and doing it wholeheartedly. So I think this wholeheartedness is really very key here Oh, it's a, an area where we really can bring the fullness of our attention. And the Dhammapada, which most of you probably know what the Dhammapada is, a collection of uh, teachings in verse form, it's a small book. It's quite beautiful and poetic. There's, um, you know, a lot of good stuff in there. The Buddha puts this same thing quite simply in there. Avoid all evil, cultivate the good, purify your heart. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. So in a way we can see the entire path in this very simple way of highlighting, cultivating what is useful, skillful, wholesome, letting go of that which is not useful. And that process in and of itself has this quality of bringing purification, purifying the heart and the mind. Hmm. I mentioned the 10 paramis the other night, these 10 noble qualities that the Buddha said to have perfected over innumerable lifetimes. And Dana generosity is the first one of the, on the list of these. Uh, lovely, beautiful qualities of heart. And this is another way that we can look at uh, the unfolding of our path of practice is in the ripening of these beautiful qualities in the heart. And so uh, implicit in this is the idea that as we cultivate these, that they they grow and become uh, more firmly established in our hearts. And sometimes I think this idea of of somehow perfecting qualities can be a little bit hard to relate to. I think sometimes we feel as though we're born with a certain amount of kindness or wisdom or energy or patience, and that's just the way it is. And we sometimes compare ourselves to others in this regard. And I might say, well, Michelle is kind and wise and uh, I'll never measure up, you know, as though somehow She was born that way and I was born the way I am and too bad. (laughs) But it's really, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't really work that way. You know, our hearts and our minds are capable of change. Nothing is static in our lives in this way. If, if this weren't true, there'd be no point in coming on retreat, certainly. And the Buddha spoke about this in terms of the the power of where we place our mind and the uh, power of intention in the mind and the heart. This is another, I'm quoting the Dhammapada a lot tonight. This is a very famous quote from that collection. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with an impure mind, one speaks or acts, suffering follows as the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief, all are mind made. If with a pure mind, one speaks or acts, happiness follows like one's never departing shadow. So there's great emphasis placed here on on how what we what we turn our attention to, what we bring our mind and heart to. We may be able to see and and, uh, really understand rather easily how attention to our conduct, to ethical conduct, to sila functions in this way of being a a foundation for meditation. And the way that leading a life of non-harming, of care, of kindness results in our hearts and minds being free of remorse and worry. And this, this calm tranquility that results from this allows for our meditation to unfold and, and to really progress. I think sometimes that kind of relationship in terms of the practice of generosity is a little less obvious. You know, we might ask ourselves, well, why would generosity be be seen as equally important as a foundation for the meditative practices. But generosity, dana, is the expression in the world of non-greed. And in essence, it functions as a counter to these forces that arise at times in the mind and the heart. So when we practice generosity, we strengthen the wholesome factor of non-greed in our mind, in our heart. <coughs> and this becomes a force for liberation in our lives. This points directly really to the, the Four Noble Truths, to the Second Noble Truth particularly, that it's this force of clinging and grasping in the mind and the heart that keeps us bound and leads to suffering. But acts of generosity work as a very direct antidote or counter to this in that through this kind of practice where we're really learning to let go. We're practicing very directly non-grasping, non-clinging. And the Buddha really praised uh, the practice of giving very highly. This is from uh, Many of you may have heard this or a version of this. This is from a collection called the Itibutaka. He said, if beings knew as I know the benefits of giving and sharing, they would not even eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya. Even if a person were to throw the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into the village pool or pond, thinking, "May whatever animals or creatures that live here feed on this," that would be a source of great merit. Over the last uh, most of twenty years now, I've. Spent a lot of time traveling and living at times in different parts of Asia, uh, India, Thailand, and, and most uh, mostly in Burma. Uh, as I said, I, I lived as a monk there for on a couple of occasions. And uh, there's a retreat in upper Burma where the three of us go. And I've been managing that retreat since uh, well, 1997, well. Forever. In 97, I got to, that was the first year I was a yogi then, and then I've gotten to be a yogi there on one other occasion, but mostly I'm managing it. And uh, in, in Buddhist countries, especially where I've spent time, there's a way that uh, this, that generosity as a practice really permeates the culture in a way that we don't see so much in the West. And there's an understanding and a value of generosity, of the practice of generosity, that's really beautiful and, and very inspiring to see. And I'm not saying, when I make this statement, that, that generosity doesn't exist in the West, it does. And there are ample, abundant examples of, of generous behavior and uh, action here, here at home. You know, there's a huge outpouring of, of uh, generosity at times when natural disasters have struck. Um, I think the United States gives, I don't know, billions of dollars to, uh, from individual citizens for relief efforts in various ways. Often, usually in, in the West, the practice of generosity takes the form of a donation in this way, some kind of philanthropy or volunteerism is also a very uh, beautiful way that people are generous and offering of time and energy. I found uh, someone gave me this article I want to read. Um, I had seen before, but a friend of mine found it and, and uh, pointed it out to me again recently. It's uh, from People Magazine of all places. Um, this is a story that takes place in Dallas, Texas during, and it has this, um, it's during the time of uh, all these house home floor foreclosures that have been happening uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, I'll read a bit of it here. Marilyn Mock walked into a Dallas foreclosure auction to help her son buy a house and she walked out with a friend for life. Inside the auction hall, she'd noticed a woman who was lost in thought as the auctioneer brought down the gavel. I asked her, are you here to buy a house? Said Marilyn Mock, a married mother of three. Pointing to item number 73, the woman started crying. That's my house, said 38-year-old Tracy Orr. So um, a few years before, uh, five years or so before she had uh, purchased this major fixer-upper house for $5,000. And she'd actually taken it and moved it to a one-acre lot um, from where it was. It was an old farmhouse. And she'd taken out a mortgage and to fix it up. And it needed a new roof and the whole deal, plumbing, electricity. So it was kind of you know, a shell that was in good enough shape to fix. And uh, she was working. Uh, you know, she had a job, but then, uh, and her, she said, I planned on, on dying there. But she lost her job and uh, was about to get evicted. She moved into a trailer and she'd come to this auction to sort of say goodbye to this house. So um, when the house came up, uh, Marilyn Mock said, I just started bidding. Winning the house for roughly $30,000, she told um, Tracy Orr, I did this for you. So now, um, uh, the woman who bought it, she's making the payments. And the woman whose house it was is paying her off. She's living there and paying her off uh, as she can. Hopefully, she'll eventually pay the whole thing off. And uh, someone asked her why she did this, why she would go to such lengths. And she shrugged it off. She said, I just do this kind of thing. Anyway, I thought that was a great story. Um, in Buddhist countries, um, there's a way that people hold this practice of generosity that is, is a little different as I mentioned because they see it as so integral to the, their path in meditation and spiritual life. They see how it really functions as this foundation And they also look at it very much in terms of its meritorious nature. And the Pali word for merit is punya. And it's a concept which is central to Buddhist understanding. And it's throughout the teachings, all of the suttas, not all of the suttas, many of the suttas make reference to this idea of merit. Uh, But it's something that I think is, is often misunderstood in the West, it seems, can seem quite foreign to us here. I know for myself when I first encountered this idea, concept of, of merit, I had a very strong reaction against it. Um, I thought it seemed to imply that somehow I would do something good in order to reap some sort of reward or benefit. Um, I remember I was... Uh, I had, was spending some time in Northern California, and I had met um, a monk in England named Ajahn Amaro that some of you may know. He uh, now lives at uh, a monastery in California called Abayagiri, north of San Francisco. And I met him first in England in 1994, and then in 90 f- 1995, he came to the, to Northern California and was spending several months there in residence. And then he had this plan to spend the rains retreat. I mentioned in the story of the metta sutta, the rains period, that the, uh, the monks stay in one place. Monks and nuns stay in one place for this time. So he had this plan to spend the rains in California. And so there was a place um, not where, uh, north of where Abayagiri is now uh, called Bell Springs Hermitage. That um, well has a nice name, and there wasn't anything <laughs> there. Um, there was no hermitage at the time. There was, you know, a platform for a yurt and an unfinished little sort of kitchen building, and a, there was a spring and a water tank. But it was a long ways away, and so anyway, I did a lot of I, I volunteered to set this place up for them, and um, you know, it was a lot <laughs> anyway for a lot of work just to get it ready. And then I stayed there and took care of them, and cooked and uh, served and uh, coordinated people coming to visit and for this rains retreat. And um, I remember one of the monks saying, oh, there's such great merit in this, what you're doing. And I just wanted no part of it because I felt like, well, my, I'm not doing this because of some, some reward of some kind. It, I felt um, that that was somehow, it bothered me or it made me seem to diminish my offering in my mind, but I've come to really understand it in a very different way over the years. And really this idea of merit of there being benefit from our wholesome actions really means that we acknowledge that, that wholesome, skillful, good actions have a power in our lives and in the world that extends beyond the scope and the time and the place of of any, of the deed itself, of the action itself. And it's, so it's this understanding that these wholesome actions yield positive and and beneficial results. And that this goodness informs not only our present, our life in the present, but that it extends into the future as well. So fundamentally, it's an understanding of the law of karma, of karma, that wholesome, meritorious good deeds yield beneficial results. And not in some kind of one-to-one way where, you know, if I do this, I know I'm going to get this. It's unfolds in a mysterious kind of way, but it's, it's a natural process. And with this understanding that skillful, useful, good actions yield positive, beneficial results, there's an understanding with merit that uh, that this, the, this goodness, the power of this goodness can be dedicated not only for our own benefit, for, but for the benefit of others, for their welfare, for the awakening of, of all beings. In Theravada Buddhism, I'm not sure about other traditions, but in, which is what we're doing here. <laughs> uh, Theravada, the way of the elders, it's the Buddhism that's practiced these days. in Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, it's, uh, draws on the ancient teachings, the oldest teachings from the Pali Canon. Uh, They're seen as three bases for merit to arise, which are the same as this uh, cultivation of dana, sila, and bhavana, of generosity, of ethical conduct, and of meditation, mind training. So, it is said that merit arises in these three realms as a result of actions performed in these three areas. So, as I I said, when we think of the idea of merit, it doesn't imply that we would undertake good deeds in order that we expect something in return, but that we acknowledge this power and there's a beautiful way that we can dedicate and offer this goodness for the benefit of others that connects us with all beings and this has really become a more and more important part of my practice over over the years and i i really do this as a daily reflection and uh, it's a way that we can bring Particular specific people in mind. For example, this last I did a retreat in a uh, uh, couple of months in the spring, this spring at the Forest Refuge, and and during that time I really consciously was uh, dedicating the merit of my practice for the benefit of my parents, who are um, I maybe mentioned the other night. I can't remember, but they're both ninety-one now, and. Um, Times are hard, it's life is hard right now for them. And so I, uh, they were, I dedicated the merit of my practice, of my wholesome actions for, for them, but their benefit and for the benefit of all beings. And when we, when we do this dedication of merit, we are, we, um, we bring to mind our own highest aspirations, which is a beautiful thing to do. And we connect with others through our wishes for their, wel- their welfare and their happiness. So it's a beautiful expression of metta, of loving kindness in the world. And when we offer the merit of our wholesome actions in this way, um, the merit increases exponentially through the power of the generous action. So we win out in all ways. When we give it away, we, it's not diminished somehow. Actually increased. So when this practice of generosity flows from this kind of connection to our own highest aspiration and to the, our wishes for the happiness, the welfare, the liberation of others, then we can see how this practice of generosity of dhana is, is a very natural, beautiful expression of loving kindness, of goodwill in the world. And more and more, I have really come to see the practice of generosity in this way. When love and goodwill are strong in the heart, when metta is there in a strong way, then the intention of offering and sharing really arises quite naturally and spontaneously. And as we practice giving and offering in this way, then goodwill and metta increase as a result of that. So, yeah, as I was saying, I go to Burma almost every winter to help with the retreat. Uh, If I can, I'll stay longer for some practice of my own. And I also have been working with a couple of small um, humanitarian aid projects there. One of them is run through the monastery where the retreat in the Sagayang Hills happens. And uh, every time I go to that country, I'm struck Uh, in a fresh way every time I go there by the kindness and generosity of the Burmese people. It seems like any place you go, even in very poor places, which is pretty much everywhere, uh, people are always offering you something, and they're very gracious people. You have to be careful when you visit people not to compliment or admire things too much or they'll, they're going to hand it to you, <laughs> you'll wind up with it as a gift often. And there's the tradition, I think probably Daphne this afternoon, for those of you who were here, she mentioned there is this tradition of the teachings being offered freely. And in places like Burma, this means there's no charge of any kind to go to the monasteries or meditation centers to practice. It's run completely on dana. And one of the ways that that the places like that are supported, which is, we're seeing more and more now, is this is the tradition of offering a meal, which we have the meal board in the dining room, and that's really great. To I love to read it and see see that people engaging in that practice. That's fairly new that we've had that uh, way of listing it at least here. But in Burma, they put up a huge board, <laughs> and people even will announce it and uh, here we kind of sometimes we like to say a little more anonymous. That's not so much the case there. But sometimes at certain times of the year, it can be hard to even get get a space on. You know, during the rains period is traditional time when a lot of people go to monasteries. A friend of mine went to uh, another teacher friend uh, went to a monastery in Lower Burma where a very famous uh, teacher, Pa'ok Saida, teaches. And he was going to be practicing there. He took temporary ordination for the rains period and he was going to practice there. And he wanted to offer a meal. So he, before he ordained, while he was still handling money, he went into their office and and wanted to um, offer the meal during the time he was there. And they said, well, they're all full already. And during that time, there's, I don't know, eight or nine hundred people there, and it's a poor part of Burma, and it, most of that Donna was coming from the locals <laughs> around there, not all of it, of course. But he had to settle for a date quite a ways after he was, had left for his uh, his donation. Um, so it's, it's very beautiful um, to see how people support the centers in that way. Mm-hmm. I was living at a small, uh, not that small, at a monastery meditation center a couple of hours outside of Rangoon. For uh, most of a year, I lived there, and I was living as a monk. I had that good fortune and honor to live in that way. And uh, as I mentioned the other night, uh, monks and nuns in this tradition are alms mendicants, which mean that's a polite way of saying beggars. Um, But the right livelihood for monks and nuns, uh, monks especially, nuns, well, no, nuns do it in a slightly different way, is to to go with a bowl through, in this case, through the village and collect uh, alms food for the daily meal. You're not allowed to keep, you can't keep food overnight. You have to go daily. And there's this way that the life then is tied into the uh, one is very directly tied into the community, and so the, the community offers that direct support of livelihood of food and uh, shelter, robes, medicine, those four things, the four requisites. And then the the monastery offers um, this place of sanctuary, the teachings, um, the conduct of the the ordained Sangha, their ethical conduct following a very strict uh, set of training rules. So alms round is right livelihood for monks. And so there was a period of time there where, well, I went on alms round every day because uh, you, you have no joy. <laughs> you have to do it. Um, but I had decided at a certain uh, point that I would uh, undertake one of what are called the Dutanga practices. They're an austerity um, which is allowed for monks to live only on alms food, to eat only one meal a day. You have to not eat afternoon. That's a given, but you can live on, sometimes you'll have a breakfast and a lunch meal. But I was going to only eat alms food and just one meal a day from what I could collect in the village. I decided to do this because I was going on alms round, but then I was turning the food into the kitchen and it would go into the, the big pot for everybody. So I decided one day if I got anything more than just rice, then I would start eating that as my meal. So that day I got um, a slice of papaya and all-ran rice. So that was my meal the first day. And some days I'd get tons of food, and some days I'd get probably my my leanest meal was rice, always lots of that, and one ball small ball of jaggery, which is palm sugar. <laughs> I remember being somewhat disappointed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's a great training to, to uh, you know, be content with what is given. Um, there's a chant that is done in monasteries that uh, is a reflection on the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha of the Buddha, the teaching and the ordained Sangha. And the final line in the reflection on the qualities of the Sangha is Anuttaram punyake tamlo kasa" in Pali. And uh, it's usually translated as they give occasion for great, uh, they give occasion for great goodness to arise in the world. And I, I used to kind of wonder what this was pointing at. And when I would go on alms round, I, I thought, well, this is one way that the Sangha gives occasion for great, beautiful goodness to arise in the world and giving this opportunity for people to offer in this very direct way. And there was a way of connecting with this really ancient lineage of tradition since before the time of the Buddha. Some people have been making a living this way, going on alms round, and uh, there's very strict rules about it. You can't ask for anything. You can't go up to a house. You can stand in the street, and if people see you and they feel so moved, they can, they'll come out and put a spoon of rice or something in your bowl. Um, and I used to, uh, I went on the same route day after day. So the people got to know me the same time. And there was, uh, some people would just plop rice, you know, a monk, that's what you do and very perfunctory, you know, (laughs) no big deal. But some people would make these offerings in this, such a beautiful way. Um, Even one woman who, who would, she had a very, very simple bamboo shack, but she would, I remember one day she offered me just a flower, one flower, and, uh, but she did it with such care and grace and such a beautiful way, it was um, so clear to me that it was a very deep practice for her to offer in this way. I'm going to run out of time. I have tons of good stories. Um, hmm. Hmm? Okay, I was going to tell that one. Michelle wants me to tell this one story. It's kind (laughs) of, it's kind of (laughs) sad, so be prepared. But it's beautiful, and it points to the uh, power of this practice for people. There was, um, on the same route that I would take, there was one house and there was a young woman who would come really every day and she was quite thin and didn't look too well and she moved a bit slowly and she would come to the gate uh, where, on the road where we would stop. And some of the time I was with a small group and a lot of the time I was on my own Then during the rains period I was walking by myself. And she would come out and offer some rice or a spoonful of whatever simple curry they were eating uh, for their own meal. And uh, over time, uh, she had to be helped out by, by one of the other people in the household. First one was walking with her and then one on both sides. And this is over a period of, of weeks, months actually. And uh, she was getting weaker. And I was worried. I didn't know anything her story at all. And then finally, after uh, a few months, I, at one point, they, they motioned us to me to come into the yard, which you, you would only do if invited, and then you can go in. And so I went in and she was sitting in a chair close to the house. And uh, so I would bend down so that she could offer into my bowl then, because she was getting too weak to stand. And so it was clear that she was not at all, she was very sick. And so, so that time period went by where I would, they'd come and, and wave me in and I would go in and receive the alms food. And then one day, um, one day she wasn't there. There was no one. They didn't call me in and, and a few days went by. And then one of the other monks, one of the local monks, Burmese monks, told me that she had passed away. She had died. But she was offering, she wanted to offer this something uh, until she was too weak to do it at all. Um, and it was a very poignant um, time. Uh, there was, it was so clear that, that this practice was um, really deep in her heart as something very profound and beautiful to do. At the monastery in Upper Burma where we have the retreat, we have the donna like we do here, and, uh, and the people on, who come on retreat offer meals often. And also, uh, uh, there's always someone from the area nearby or from Mandalay, a local person or family who will come, often more than one during the retreat. Sometimes um, a whole small village, they'll pool all their resources and they'll send some people to come and offer on behalf of the whole village for the retreat. And they'll often come uh, the night before and they'll stay up all night cooking and, or get up really early in the morning. You'll hear them uh, talking and having a good time cooking. And then they offer the meal and they'll, sometimes you'll be sitting there and there we sit on the floor around round tables and there'll be like 20 people lined up watching you eat, (laughs) like an audience and uh, they're so happy. It's kind of takes a little getting used to (laughs) uh, because we're not used to having an audience while we eat because they're not eating. They've offered the meal and they want to see you eat. And, um, but they have, they're so happy. There's so much joy in that offering that um, one quickly lets go of any sort of being self-conscious about having an audience for your eating because they're so pleased to see this very direct support. They have such respect for people who would come there to meditate. You know, that you would, that someone would travel halfway around the world to come and practice is just huge um, in their eyes. They really, really honor that. And uh, it's really lovely to be supported in that way. It's very humbling and very inspiring for me at least. It's said that practicing generosity, giving brings happiness in three times. There's happiness before when we think of that we're going what we want to do. There's happiness at the time of actually offering. And then there's happiness when we reflect on our goodness, on our good deed. Usually at that retreat I I will give some kind of talk about Donna or often, and one year um that was my duty and uh was the last day or two of the retreat and uh everyone else wanted to go visit uh, one of the nearby monasteries where there's a a monk I think Michelle mentioned the miatong Sayadaw we call the happy Sayadaw. who's i think he's ninety two now and uh He's someone that I find it worth flying to Burma just to sit in the same room with for a little while. <clears throat> so I didn't want to go because I wanted to think about what I was going to say. And they said, no, no, you have to come. You don't need to think about it. <laughs> so I, uh, I said, okay, I'll come, but you have to let me ask Sayadaw a question. So we went to see him and I said, uh, I said, Sayadaw, I have to give a talk about Donna. and." Uh, it's not so much in our culture. So do you have any advice what I should say to the yogis? And um, there was, he was sitting on his chair and there was a bowl of oranges there and he, he started throwing them at me. And <laughs> he said, he likes, he's, he's prone to wild gestures. <laughs> he said, Donna, this is Donna throwing at throwing me." He said, and then he gestured around and said, all of this is Donna. Without Donna, none of this would be here. none of us would be here everything here is because of Donna and I thought, well okay you know here in this here in this monastery that's very clear you know it's all been donated you know that's how those things come into being is that people donate the, the materials and the supplies they come there and they build it and, and so all of his his lodgings and, and all of his stuff there um, was because of that, but then I I was reflecting and I thought, you know, for all of us, there's so much in our lives that is the result of kindness and uh, generosity on the parts of others. I mean, for myself, just the number of couches in people's living rooms that (laughs) I've depended on over the last, you know, 17, 18 years now of being mostly kind of homeless in a way, um, that's been a huge support to me. I have, <laughs> there's a lot of couches around the country that bear my indentation. <laughs> I'm going to run out of time. Uh, I have to tell one more really good story. And then I, I'll just run over and babble on, on and on and on. No, I promise I won't. <laughs> I'll wrap it up. But this is really good. So sometimes um, a really small act of generosity can have very large, um, far-reaching consequences, results. Uh, Stephen Smith, who started the, uh, he and Sayada'u Ulakana at the monastery in Sagang, they started the, they came up with the idea to have a retreat there every year for uh, people outside, foreign non-Burmese people to come and practice. Um, He was there before the, and a year or two before we started having the retreat, he'd gone up to um, to meditate, to practice with a friend of ours who's since has passed away. Um, they went to a cave next door nearby, next to the Chajwa Monastery where this retreat is at a nearby nunnery actually that had a uh, pretty good, nice cave, big enough for two cave. <laughs> so they were um, meditating in there and. There was a construction project going on um, there at the uh, behind the cave at part of the nunnery. They were fixing a building or building a new building. And um, a lot of ta- women work, uh, young women especially, work as um, helpers for for masons, for builders by carrying uh, bricks and cement on, on their heads. And that's how you carry things in that part of the world. And they'll carry a bowl, a metal bowl of, mortar or they'll carry a stack of bricks. It's kind of amazing, these stacks of bricks that they can carry. And so there was a young woman there who was working as a laborer helping on the construction project. That was her job. And uh, one day she, and she, he, you know, she was walking by every day. So she knew they were in the cave meditating. And one day she came and and she offered a can of Coca-Cola to Stephen, maybe to both of them. But I think it was just the one can to him because he was, a. You know, he was a foreigner, he was an American, so Coke, he should have a Coke <laughs> and, uh, and Coke was, it was imported. You know, it wasn't produced locally, so it cost a lot more than local soda and, and the cost of it was probably about three or four days wages for her um, in the wage scale at that time. Of course, you can't quite compare it because, you know, 35 cents goes a lot farther there than it would here, but it was a huge, um, you know, you can imagine if you would spend three of your day's wages on, on something to offer to someone in that way, it, it was pretty big. And uh, Stephen was very moved by this. And uh, as a result of this, he, in talking with Saida Vlachana, decided to uh, start uh, a project to offer back to the villagers there in Wachet Village. So they came up with the, the Meta project, which has been happening now since about 1996, 97. And um, so we we raise money every year and and bring it in. Um, and so it's, you know, this very local grassroots thing, 100% of it goes to these great projects. So we've built a new school for the kids in the village because their old one used to get flooded out every year. Rainy season when the river would rise, so it's a a new school made of masonry building and um, it's really a great school. It has a good reputation. People are saying this school is one of the best in this whole area. We support the kids there with their tuition and uniforms because a lot of them are so poor that they wouldn't maybe go to school because their parents can't afford these things and the school won't provide them their pencils and, um, you know, writing books and tablets. Uh, we support some projects at the local uh, hospital that started a, a free hospital, free for, uh, for ordained sangha, free for monks and nuns and, and highly subsidized for the locals. And we support some projects there, including an, an acupuncture training program that's uh, been a really great success. And we support three nearby nunneries with donations directly to the nuns. And we've done a few other things. We paved the road in front of the hospital to keep the dust down and some restoration of some local tombs and monuments. So this huge thing that's impacted this village in a, in a really big way, <coughs> it's had a real broad impact in the village. It came from this, this can of Coke that was offered uh, was the initial energy behind that Mm. well let's see this practice of giving can really take many forms you know it's not just giving money or material things but we can give time and energy and we can or work in communities. I think sometimes just allowing someone to be who they are is a real act of generosity. We off- we offer our, we can give our, our conduct, our commitment to non-harming. And when we, when we give this gift, we give the gift of fearlessness, which is one of the greatest gifts of all. We can become a beacon of light, a refuge for people if we give this gift of non-harming. The Buddha said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all gifts. I want to read a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya. Giving food, one gives strength. Giving clothing, one gives beauty, giving a vehicle, one gives ease, and giving a lamp, one gives sight. The one who gives a residence is the giver of all, but the one who offers the Dhamma is the giver of the deathless. So this, this idea of the giver of the deathless, the giver of the path to freedom, this is seen as as the highest offering. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when we think about giving in this of generous actions, we we can sometimes feel that we'll we'll have less, that we'll be diminished somehow by this. But I think for myself, I've certainly seen that we actually discover that the opposite is true and that we're actually enrich, enriched by practicing generosity. And that when we practice generosity, we develop this sense of inner abundance feeling that we have enough to share. That's not at all based on some objective sort of criteria of what we have materially of our wealth or abundance. There's lots of, of examples of people who have a lot of material abundance and yet have a sense of, of inner poverty. And some who are very poor, often the poorest people, sometimes are the most generous. One way we can connect to this quality of inner abundance is by asking ourselves in any moment, what, what do I really need right now to be happy? feel content to feel that I have enough because we're so conditioned to feel that we, we don't have enough. And our economy, the world of advertising, its goal is to persuade us that we're in a constant state of lack and that we'll be happy if we get a new whatever it is. You know, we're bombarded with these kinds of images. We need a new body or a new car or a new the latest and greatest whatever it is but if we really look in any moment we'll see that maybe we don't actually need so much in order to really touch a place of deep contentment hmm. I was going to say a bit about gratitude, but I'm out of time. But gratitude is all tied up in this. And we can't give without touching this quality of gratitude. Maybe I'll read this one quote on the subject of gratitude. This is from a man who I think is a Catholic priest in Canada. His name is uh, either Henry or Henri Neuven. He said, in the past, I've always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts received. But now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. The discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all I am and have is given to me as a gift of love as a gift to be celebrated with joy. So if we really um, bring our attention, our mindfulness, our intention to generosity as a practice, when we really hold it in this way, we can start to see how the entire path really can be seen as the cultivation and the ripening of beautiful qualities of the mind and the heart and the practice of generosity. We can see how this really can begin to purify the mind and the heart of forces of greed and of a version of a delusion in the mind. And so this kind of practice really does form a very beautiful basis for the arising of wisdom and insight. So I want to close, close with one last quote, if I can find it. This is from, again, from the Itivutaka. It's an excerpt from a longer passage. It has some nice imagery. One who shares his wealth with some, but does not gladly give to others, is only like a local shower. This is how the wise would describe him. But one who rains down bountiful gifts, gladly giving here and there out of compassion for all beings, and who always says, give, give. This type of person is like a giant cloud filled with rain, thundering and pouring down, refreshing water everywhere, drenching the highlands and the lowlands too, generous without distinctions. So since we're already sitting quietly, let's sit quietly for a little longer. And then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention and we have a time for some walking now and then for those who want to come we met a choir at nine Michelle says it's really good <laughs> and uh, there's a slight chance I'll have a special treat but I can't promise